Amen. And may that song guide our discussion this morning. We are going to be looking at Luke chapter 24, as I mentioned earlier. Um, You know, Easter, yes, we celebrate Easter last Sunday, but we know Jesus walked the earth for 40 more days, as Tom already mentioned, revealing himself in many different places at one point to 500. Uh, And so I just thought it would be really great this week to spend another week looking more at his resurrected time. So we're going to look at this great passage. Uh, Then next week, Shane's going to be preaching. And then the week after that, May 3rd, we'll come back to our Elisha, Elijah study for four or five more Sundays. So uh, if you'll turn either in your Bible, I do recommend if you're at home, it'd be great to have a Bible in front of you. I'll be reading, it's on the screen, but during, during the sermon, you'll want to reflect back to the passage. And um, as I just mentioned, this, this passage is one of the several times Jesus reveals himself to, to the disciples after the resurrection. And I mentioned last week also that uh, we watched Risen, um, where remember the, we had the option between passion of Christ and Risen. And our family chose Risen, and I think it's a good choice. Yes, we want to know and reflect on, on Good Friday and what it means that Jesus went to the cross, but to really grasp and, and enjoy uh, Jesus' revealing himself, uh, watching the movie Risen, I, you just kept feeling like you, the disciples and the viewer wish he, we could have had more time at each setting with him before he went away. So this morning we get to enjoy a story uh, where Jesus reveals himself to these disciples on the road to Emmaus. So let's read together, starting in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, "'What is this conversation you are holding?' With each other as you walk. And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death, and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it as, just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, 
for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened us to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they, that is the two disciples, told what had happened on the road to them, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of God. I said that incorrectly. This is the word of the Lord. I think I heard you at home. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you have a plan, and that while the world, the disciples, and so many thought the plan went awry, it was exactly as you had structured it. And Lord, we are slow of heart, like these two disciples, to believe even now you have a plan. So I pray that through this passage, through this meditation this morning, we would see freshly Jesus, that we would see you near us, see your delight in us, and see ourselves fully in you. In your name we pray, amen. Uh, This is one of those passages that, you know, I've heard people say things like, if you could go to any place in the Bible and and kind of be the fly on the wall or watch it unfold, this is one that I would choose. I don't know if it's the only one, um, but just something about the playfulness of Jesus in this passage. Uh, He comes to them and he disguises himself and kind of pretends that he has no idea what they're talking about. And just to set the stage, uh, during, the Pas- during the crucifixion and the Passover, many people have come from all over, not only Jerusalem and Judea and Israel, but even Asia Minor and other places. They'd come from a, lo- a long ways away, and they would stay around Jerusalem in these, these smaller towns. We don't know where Emmaus is, but more than likely these disciples were staying there and they would travel in and out of Jerusalem daily which is what Jesus and his entourage would do also during the Passion Week before the crucifixion. So they're just simply returning back to their home where they're staying when Jesus arrives. But there's a lot of talk. Uh, Right now, there's a lot of talk in our culture. Uh, Even this morning when the, the music team showed up, it didn't take long. Maybe it's my fault. But we're talking about all the things, you know, with COVID-19. And, and, and it's interesting how in a world where information is so available, we have so little understanding of really what's happening. I mean, it seems like every article contradicts the article before. Every study contradicts the study before. And it, it's almost maddening. Uh, and yet, our job as, as citizens, as humans, is to understand and read uh, the, the news on COVID-19 and on what we're supposed to do. Similar, similarly, similarly, how do you say that, Angie? Similarly, similarly, can you edit that, Coleman? Okay, perfect. We're going to edit that. That's what we're doing this, not live. Just kidding. Uh, Jerusalem was a buzz. I mean, it, it's fascinating that the entire city was captivated by the events of Jesus' trial, his crucifixion, and the resurrection. 
and nobody knew what they were to do about it. And here are these two disciples walking and talking. Now, we know the name of one of the disciples is Cleopas. We don't know who that is. Uh, Interestingly, we don't know the name of the other disciple. The two prominent theories are possibly Luke, that maybe Luke is that disciple and simply did not refer to himself. Uh, Another possibility is it's Cleopas's wife, uh, that maybe is a married couple heading back to a place where they were staying. Both are very possible. Um, Also, it's very, the thoughts are even that maybe it's connected to Hebrews somehow. Now, that's a little bit more far-fetched, but we'll talk about that as we go. But the point is, here are these two disciples questioning the events that have taken place in their life. And what we see is how badly they misinterpreted the data. Like, they, they had some great data points, and we'll talk about those, but they completely missed it. And, and what we find and what we're going to see is we have to have Jesus to make sense of the times. Um, you know, when I, I, I'm legally blind, I don't know if you, if you know that. What I mean by that is I can't drive a car without glasses. Is that legally blind? Like they've told me I can't. If I get pulled over without corrective lenses, I go to, I go to jail. I don't know. So I have bad vision, but they put those little glasses on and they start clicking them. Angie, you've done this. And it's like, is that better? Or is that better? Better, better, better. And for me, when I take my contacts out and sit there in that chair, I can't see anything. And when the lenses come on and start clicking, like it gives me hope. Like, yes, like I can see better. And that's what Jesus gives us. He gives us hope that we can actually see all that is happening in our midst, the lens of Christ. And that's what I hope to happen this morning in this passage. So we're going to look at a few things. I'm not going to tell you the points until we get to them. But the first thing that the lens of Christ does is it helps us to see the narrative going on around us. Um, I want to just remind you of some of the passage. Remember that Jesus did not tell the disciples who he was, so they're on this journey. Again, there's probably, you know, after a, a basketball game or a football game, I, you know, Highway 51 is littered with cars. I envisioned Jerusalem at the, as dusk was setting in every night during a festival. Every road in and out was probably filled with, you know, walkers going back to their place where they were staying. And so it wasn't that unusual that there was a stranger near the disciples What was unusual is that the stranger had no idea what they were talking about. And so the uh, Cleopas returns the the question by saying, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who has no idea what's going on? And Jesus kind of just says, what things? He's being playful. He's luring them in. And I want you to hear how uh, Cleopas answers the question. We're at verse 21. Uh, Sorry, verse 19. He says, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was the prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. So he's not that wrong. First of all, to name Jesus as a prophet is huge. It had been 400 years for Israel since they'd had a prophet. So to say Jesus of Nazareth is a prophet is a big thing. That takes faith. And secondly, not only that, he did, he did these amazing deeds and then spoke amazing words. So there's a lot of details that Cleopas gets correctly. Also, that it wasn't Rome or Pilate who crucified him, but it was the chief priests. So he's, he's getting so many of these points correct, but he's really missing the key. 
And we're going to talk about what he's missing uh, in a moment. But Jesus simply says, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Does that sound hard? It, it comes across as harsh. But what's interesting is it draws them in. Um, he, it, that's his, that's Jesus's segue to, to, let, to explaining the truth behind the data that they have. And I'm, I'm just going to kind of reference back to Elijah and this may not be uh, grammatically perfect and that's okay. I'm just telling you what I'm envisioning kind of the, you know, the, the, the parents saying, Oh dear child, kind of a, a reprimand, but even a comfort, uh, a little bit of a comfort as well, because Right after saying, oh, foolish ones, slow of heart, he begins to do something. He begins to explain the entire Bible to them. And this is really where I think this walk to Emmaus is so fascinating. Um, For me, coming to the faith later in life, at least really understanding the Bible, it took me a while to learn that the Old Testament and the New Testament are linked. I think for some reason I just believed that the Old Testament was one way, And then the New Testament sort of changed everything. And as I became Reformed and became discipled in the Reformed faith, it started to make sense how the Bible actually points to Jesus from the very beginning. It reminds me of like, I think it's Ocean's Eleven. I remember loving Ocean's Eleven and absolutely hating Ocean's Twelve. So that's just my own opinion. I can't see anybody's faces at home, but sorry if I offended you. But Ocean's Eleven's the story with, you know, Clooney and all these great actors uh, doing a heist. I guess there's 11 of them, and his name is Danny Ocean. And they're doing a, the Bellagio in Vegas, and, and he's trying to get his wife back. And anyway, the point is they have this elaborate plan, and you think you understand it, but it's not till the very ending when uh, the, the, oh, what's his, I should have looked it up. Who's the bad guy? Who plays the bad guy from The Godfather. Anyway, someone at home, Amy Tidlin's saying it right now. I hear you, but I'm not going to repeat it right now. Um, oh, it's not coming to me. Anyway, he, he looks at the vault. He's looking at the security camera, and he sees the heist happening, and he notices that their logo is not on the floor of the vault, which they had recently added, and he knew instantly it was a scam. And, his, and then they show his mind begin to remember all of the little scams that these guys had done along the way. And I love that because when movies do that, it just shows you what happens when the lenses drop and they click into place and you can see clearly. It's just exactly what happens for these two uh, disciples. I, I imagine Jesus began, for example, all the way back in Genesis with the story of the serpent. And it's fascinating because Satan, the serpent, has created Adam and Eve, or not created, caused them to stumble and probably thinks, I've won. And God, the, you know, God shows up into the garden and says, you didn't win. The son of Eve will crush your head. And throughout the Old Testament, you can find story after story pointing to Jesus and pointing to the fact that he is the one who all of these stories pointed to. What I find so fascinating about the cross, one of the things is that I think Satan, again, just like the garden, thought I got him. 
The moment that Jesus died, the spear pierced his side, the blood and water are pouring out, revealing his death. You can almost imagine the elation of Satan and all of his demons thinking, we did it. And yet what we find out in this story is the opposite is true. That they, did the, they actually did the exact opposite. They, they were part of the process of God redeeming his people. And so there's this narrative that's being retold for us through the lenses of Christ. So my question to you is this, as we move from point one to point two, how are you telling yourself the narrative around you? How do you think of your own story? I mean, it's fascinating that this is a real story. These, these disciples were actually walking on a road when this stranger comes up and they cannot recognize him. And Jesus does do all of this retelling and re-explaining. And please understand that their hearts are burning within them prior to him revealing who he was. And what we see in that reality is that our narrative and our story needs to be reshaped. How do you look at your narrative? So many of us don't look backwards. Uh, many of you know that I've been, tra- Emily and I have been training and, and others uh, with Allender, Dan Allender, to kind of look at story work. And I don't ever want to beat that over your head. I don't want to talk about that too much, uh, although every week I talk about it. Um, but it is important, I think, that we not only look at the meta-narrative of Scripture, but we look at our own life story and see how it fits in. And in so many places where we think we were alone, can we see where Jesus was working? Think of Joseph. When Joseph was alone in the pit waiting for the band to take him and sell him into slavery, and, and then he goes from the Potiphar's jail or household to Pharaoh's household, he felt utterly alone. But later in life, he was able to restate that narrative, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Are you reframing your narrative the narrative of your story, the narrative of this pandemic, the narrative of your own depression and your own struggle with Jesus in the the picture. I want to finish that first point with the woman at the well, just the thought that, remember, Jesus goes to this woman who's at a well. She's a Samaritan. It's noon. And he tells her, go get your husband. She says, well, I don't have a husband. And he basically reveals to her that he knows really the heart of her story. And after he teaches her and cares for her and she believes, she says, he knew everything about me. Jesus is interested in our stories and he's interested in drawing us out through story and he's he's doing that here with these disciples. But there's a key thing. The key issue in this passage is what Cleopas and presumably the other disciple had missed. There's a place in verse 21 where the disciple says this, But we had hoped that he, referring to Jesus, was the one to redeem Israel. And they were sad. They were sad that indeed what they thought would be the redemption of Israel was not going to happen. Now understand that Israel, all through the Old Testament, you know, it was established after the Exodus and the conquest. You know, you have David and Solomon And then the kingdoms divide, but eventually Israel gets taken away. You have Babylon and Assyria that came in. And so by the time we get to the New Testament, Rome is governing and overseeing Israel. And they had had interpreted the Old Testament under the idea that somebody would come up and get rid of Rome and wipe them out. 
And I'm not sure that his disciples actually believed that Jesus was going to be a military king. I think they knew that wasn't true. But because of his ability to perform miracles, uh, his ability to, to preach such beautiful gospel words, they thought his word and deed would come in and be a part of the redemption of Israel. Uh, you see this in the story where he feeds the 5,000. Uh, remember, he sends his disciples away because he perceived, having fed so many people miraculously, that they were wanting to make him a king, an earthly king. So Jesus was aware of that, and, and no matter how much he was aware of it, the, the disciples couldn't shake the thought of how Jesus was going to save Israel. And they were, they were wrong. Uh, why were they so wrong? Because they do not know the depth of the problem. When you trace the, the entire Old Testament and you look at it from the very beginning, the problem is not Rome. The problem is not an outside force occupying you. The problem comes from within you. Right? The problem is sin. And they don't see that. We've been reading the Bible through. Some of you are still doing that, I hope. The 90-day Bible readers. Are any of you in the room doing the 90-day Bible readers? Tom's doing it. I promise I would never name people. I actually got an email this week from somebody, I won't name them, who has been really blessed by this scripture over, the, over these 45 days. I think we're at day 47 or 49, somewhere. Uh, but it's been fascinating to see so much of the Bible so quickly. And we're in Isaiah. We just started Isaiah this morning. Um, and and it's, what you find out is how dark Israel is. I mean, Israel is just... Unbelief, unbeliever after unbeliever, and these, the unbelief is not, you know, someone cussed and went to radar movie. Like, they're killing their kids. I mean, they're doing horrible things. They're, they're worshiping false gods. They're ignoring Yahweh, killing his prophets. And those are the good ones. No, I'm kidding. Those are the bad ones. So, it's a really dark situation. And you come to Isaiah, and I was a little bit dreading just more darkness because it starts off with, oh, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. And you just realize they were really, really dark. They were really bad. And you, you just kind of wonder, am I just going to be reading about a really mad, angry God? And in verse 18, and you know the scripture probably, but just hear these words where God, after naming all of their unbelief, all of their sin, says, come now, let us reason. Let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. We have a very tiny view of Jesus when we think he just needs to wipe out the outward problems. What are the problems you're dealing with? What are the things you're wanting him to take care of? I think if we were to take a poll, we would say things, obviously the virus, we wish it was gone. Uh, economic problems that we're having because of COVID-19. I know that many of you are wrestling with depression. If God would just lift the mood, take that, that away, that would make things so much easier and so much better. And I would say absolutely, those are for sure the ways we want Jesus to redeem us. But it's not enough. It's not enough. And the problem is with Cleopas is he doesn't recognize his brokenness. 
He is in the category that many of us find ourselves in where we actually think we're pretty good Christians. And here he is with his other disciple, unable to see the fact that Jesus Christ had to die. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us, Christians, who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discerning, the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. The cross can seem like folly to so many of us. I have a feeling in the middle of this, this problem we're all in, the cross can seem so far away. And by the word cross, I'm referring to Jesus' death and his resurrection and his ascension. Right? The cross represents, that, as we talked about last week, that Jesus is resurrected. And what we find is so often that doesn't feel like redemption enough because we have these felt needs that we don't recognize Jesus one day, someday will heal. But right now, the cross can look far away. What are you looking for for redemption? What are you longing for? Think about the thoughts that come to your mind. What do you need? They're not wrong things. But so often we want lunch. We want, you know, we want sports back. We want good things, right? We, and again, uh, we want the anxiety to go away. We want our economy to be opened back up. These are all great things, but, but please hear me. What Jesus is saying is I have something so far greater. Though your sins are like scarlet, do we believe that? They shall be as white as snow. That we would wake up and just see a blanket of snow of redemption. Jesus has provided that. That's the new narrative. That's the key that was missing from the, the, the description that Cleopas and the disciple came. So our, our third and final point then, first point was that we see the new narrative. The second point is we actually see the real need. The third point is we see our connection um, to the redemption Jesus has brought. They drew near the village. Jesus has been explaining the Bible to them. Later they say our, their hearts were leaping within them. Uh, the disciples beg Jesus, come, eat, eat, dine with us. And he does. And they sit down and he takes the bread and he blesses it and he breaks it. This is my body, right? He does it. We don't know that he said those words. And instantly two things happened. He was gone and they knew he was Jesus. They saw him. Now, some commentators will say, don't, don't make too much of that, um, you know, it doesn't necessarily, you know, there's always debate about what he means, and it's very tricky. But here's what I want to process with you. They, it, that was important. There's something about the physicality, the food. There's something about the reality of, of a meal that, that mattered to them. Um, if you listen to the rest of the story, they go race, by the way, they raced like seven miles uphill. I don't know how long it takes them. It says within the hour they left, but many commentators think that means they didn't, I don't think you can go seven miles in one hour on feet maybe. Maybe they ran, I don't know. But they, they, they hustled, okay? They got there and they were tired. And when they get to 
you know, when you have a story you just can't wait to tell, they find that they find the 11 apostles and those that are gathered with them and they, you know, break into the door and you think that they have this story to tell and the 11 are like, hey, guess what? And they kind of pause. What? Jesus has risen. Indeed, he showed himself to Simon. Now, that's kind of, I mean, that's like, I just, you know, when you want to tell the story first and they told the story, but the point is, they're all rejoicing, but listen to how they describe it. Verse 35, then they, that's these two disciples, told what had happened to them on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. It was significant. In John 6, you have this place I talk about from time to time where Jesus has amassed a crowd of followers and begins to explain that he is the bread of life. And they don't understand. And eventually he starts to say, if you don't eat of my body and drink of my blood, you won't have, like, you're not part of me. And when he makes those comments, remember, they debate for a little while, but eventually most of that crowd leaves. And then Jesus turns to his disciples and said, are you going to leave as well? And it's Peter who spoke up saying, where else will we go? You have the words of eternal life. Now, I think Peter's saying two things. A, I believe you're the Messiah and you have the words of eternal life. But B, I kind of do want to run. Like what you're saying is kind of crazy. Like we're going to eat of you. And I don't, I've really worked very hard every time I've come back to that passage to not tie it up with a bow for us because it's not just the Lord's Supper or just something because whatever it is is so profound that it creates most people's desire to flee. But I think what Jesus is saying is this. Redemption, in order for it to be accomplished and applied, means you and I are fundamentally tied and filled with his spirit. We are in union with the triune God. Like we, we cease to exist apart from him. And so often we read these passages of the, of the season, where he, the 40 days where he's walking among the disciples and we long for him. Uh, after the movie Risen, um, Bonnie, I'm gonna use you, Your, Bonnie's in the back of the room. She came into our bedroom and she was just really sad and she, she's very good about knowing why she's sad. She's really tired. And, we, and finally she just said, I just wanna see him crying I just want to see Jesus. Remember that, Bonnie? No one can see you. You can look at me and nod. It was such a sweet response to that movie because we long to see Jesus. But remember something, brothers and sisters. When Jesus ascended to heaven, he said, I'm doing this. Because, you know, to see you, the two disciples, or to see the 11, because in the next passage, by the way, in verse 36, he comes into that very room in Jerusalem to see them, to see the 500. Those are amazing things, but how much more amazing is it that he has sent his Holy Spirit into our hearts? In John 7, he says, who is thirsty? I will give you rivers of living water. And, he, and then John tells us, referring to the Holy Spirit, whom he has not yet sent. You and I live on the road to Emmaus. We have Christ through his Spirit dwelling with us at all times. Jesus calls him the counselor. In Romans 8, Paul says, 
verse 9, you are not of the flesh, but you are of the Spirit. What's Paul talking about? You have fundamentally changed. Your spiritual DNA can no longer go back to being alone. Anytime you conceive of your story or your personhood as being alone, you're with the disciples. You're clueless. Your blinders are, your glasses are off. The true statement about you and I is that from now on until we see Jesus face to face, we are filled with his spirit. Paul goes on to say, in fact, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Whose righteousness? Jesus' righteousness. If the spirit of him, Jesus, who raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The reason I wanted to spend some time talking about Jesus resurrected is it brings us joy to think, see his playfulness, to see that he's real, to see that he loves these disciples and he loves you and he dwells in you. And he is connecting you to the Father eternally. And we have that at all times. That is what's true for us. He's our great counselor. A lot of you do Zoom calls. And there's such a thing called Zoom counseling. So if you can't meet with a counselor face-to-face, you Zoom with them. Okay? It's not as great. It's not as great. In fact, it's much better to be sitting in the room with your counselor uh, for so many reasons. But it's far worse to be sitting in the room with a really bad counselor or just by yourself, okay? Here's the point, it's an illustration. We don't have face-to-face access with Jesus right now, right? We have his spirit, it's the first fruits. But he's real. Just like in a Zoom call, you know, though there's technical glitches, though there's moments where the person's thing goes black, On the other end is a real person. On the other end is Jesus. His spirit dwells in you, and it's true. So now, if that's true, let us begin to restate our narratives. Let us begin to funnel all of the information that we process in our minds and our hearts through the lens of Jesus. Let us pray to him. That doesn't mean we'll understand everything that's happening, but it does mean this. I don't know what computer models you prefer to figure out what's going to happen in the future, but if it doesn't include the cross and a resurrection and and Jesus' return, then it's a faulty model. So let us make sure we adopt the current model, the correct model of the gospel as we look at the narrative. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that through the scripture we have the lens, the correct model to see all of what's happening before us. Lord, it doesn't explain every detail, but it explains the ones that matter. That in you, we have redemption. We have the righteousness of Christ. Lord, though our bodies are dead in sin, our spirits are alive in you, that Paul tells us in Romans 8. And so, Lord, I pray that just like those two disciples who saw in a flash who you really were, Jesus, in that moment. I pray that we would begin to see you more and more as we feast on your word, as we fellowship with one another, as we pray to you. Will you please continue to pour out 
your spirit more and more into our lives that we would see you clearly. Amen. Amen.